Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Academic Life. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Dr. Anthony Ocampo, who is the author of Brown and Gay in L.A., The Lives of Immigrant Sons. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks. It's great to be here. I am so glad you're here that we get to talk about your book. Um, I hope we're going to talk about the craft of nonfiction writing and all kinds of things today in the time that we have together. Before we start diving into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Sure. Um, What can I say? I was born and raised in Los Angeles, Northeast LA in a very Filipino neighborhood called Eagle Rock. Um, I'm an only child. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm a Virgo, uh, son of Filipino immigrants, and let's see. Oh, my day job is I'm a professor of sociology at Cal Poly Pomona. I like to ask guests a little bit about their educational journey, particularly for listeners uh, who may be making their own decisions or looking up ahead. Did you know you wanted to go to college, and how did you choose your own academic journey? Yeah, that's a great question. Um I knew I wanted to go to college when I was younger and college was sort of in the abstract, a a thing to do. It was framed as the thing you do to get a job one day, but I didn't necessarily know like what I wanted to study or where I wanted to go. But, you know, I ended up going to this um, all boys prep school called Loyola high school in LA where I didn't realize um, until I got there that it was so in the culture to talk about, college applications and going to the quote unquote, the best colleges or the most competitive colleges like Ivy's and such. And so in some ways through process of osmosis, that became a goal of mine too. Um, And that's what ended up pushing me in that direction. So I went to Stanford for undergrad and Stanford was funny. (laughs) It was, it was a funny place because as, as you can imagine, everyone was, really on top of their academic game. But for me, it was it was a bit challenging given that I felt like a fish out of water coming from this very like immigranty neighborhood to a place that was very white, very wealthy. Um, and, you know, of course, being 18, you're just going through things in terms of identity formation. But, but I think that ended up playing a role in what I ended up studying. Uh, I majored in ethnic studies in part because that was a space where I felt like 
the, the what I had to bring to the table or conversations about race that were everyday life in my in my life in LA before Stanford, it had a place there, it had value there, it, it had intellectual merit. It was also the place where I, I first got the chance to study my own community, Filipino Americans. Uh, so yeah, that kind of put me on a track towards academia. I've, I had a lot of mentors that said, oh, you'd be a great, you'd be great as a professor without actually explaining what that all entailed. Um, so that became my goal. And I ended up going to UCLA to study sociology, got my PhD there and uh, ended up at Cal Poly Pomona, which is actually not too far from where I grew up in LA. You share a bit about your educational journey in the pages of Brown and Gay in LA. And one of the things I noticed was that the conversations that were being held on campus and the conversations you were having off campus didn't intersect, that more of the identity formation conversations you were having and the language you were gathering was happening in the off hours. Do you want to talk a little bit about finding a culture and community and all of the richness you gathered there? Yeah, absolutely. I think... So I'm, I'm a Filipino person. I'm a queer person. A lot of the people featured in this book um, have the same identity. Others are Mexican-American and, and queer as well. And so it's and we're all son of immigrants. That was something we had in common. But if you if you think about it, you know, when you major in, in something like psychology or history or um, even sociology, those are places where you, you don't really get to talk openly or explicitly about those parts of your identity, you definitely don't read about them. Um, and so, and you, you often don't have professors that are necessarily familiar with what those experiences are, unless they themselves are from that background. And yet these are identities that are super central and important to myself, to the people that I interviewed. And so if not given the space in classrooms, what's going to happen? Well, People tend to engage with those identities outside the classroom and student organizations, community organizations. Um, and I feel like a lot of the work that happens there ends up being just as valuable, if not more valuable than the, what you learn in the classroom. So, for example, I'll just use the example of sexual health, queer sexual health and how um, no one studies queer sexual health in high school uh, when they're taking sex ed classes. And it's not often the case that that's discussed in in college settings as well. And so when it came to coming to one's own sexuality, a lot of those lessons came from peers that were part of student organizations or part of community centers. Um, so yeah, I feel like it was a, it was a good lesson in showing me that the the knowledge you gain outside the classroom is just as valuable as the knowledge you gain in the classroom. And it seemed that a lot of it became foundational for the book. We were speaking off air a few moments ago about the difference between how we're taught to write in grad school and how we would actually express ourselves if we were doing our best writing. And it seems that a lot of the best research and the foundational work of this particular book came from off campus. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you go to grad school, I studied sociology, so 
if you're going to study a topic like this, you, what the, the convention is to study sociological studies, um, academic studies about immigration, race and ethnicity, sexuality. So, of course, I read those studies. I don't want folks to think that I wasn't diving into them. But uh, what's interesting is what really shaped the the style and the and the storytelling and the and the way it was it was ordered. Um, I drew a lot of inspiration from creative writers, particularly creative nonfiction writers. I was in I was really in a rabbit hole of learning about um, creative nonfiction when I was writing this book in terms of the craft of it. And so I had wonderful teachers like Kiese Lehman, um, Cynthia Greenlee is a good friend of mine who's uh, a historian and a journalist, um, Imani Perry. Um, there's, there's so much that I drew from creative nonfiction writers, not just in terms of, you know, I talk about people always assume that's mainly about like the writing style, but to be honest, like the intellectual rigor of how to manufacture and construct sentences and how to, how to vary the rhythm of them or how to, how to, how to pan in and pan out. Those were skills that I learned from, um, the creatives and not necessarily from being a sociologist. You have a, a Manny Perry quote that really was formational for this book. You, you refer to it in the beginning. You refer to it at the end. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of these thinkers who did influence the book? For sure. I mean, Imani Perry is just such a wonderful person. I think I met her actually in – I've known about her for a very long time, but I met her in person in 2019 at a, at a writer's workshop, actually. She was one of the faculty there. And what I'll never forget about Imani Perry is that she, you know, I know that she's this incredibly busy person, not just in terms of being a scholar, but also as, as a mother. And yet, when you talk to her, when I was talking to her, there was no point at which it felt like she needed to go somewhere or she needed to leave. She was in, she was just so fully present. And I just, I thought that that moment was such a model for how to be a great researcher as well, right? I think a lot of times um, when people are doing research projects, they have one eye on the results or the the product, the publications, and it was it was really great to 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 meet her because there was a lot of like listening to the moment, if you will. And I think that was around the time she was working on her book, South to America, as well. And, you know, we had conversations about some of the folks that she met around the city where the writing workshop took place, which was Savannah. Um, but, yeah, I feel like I learned a lot of, about how to be as a person, as a writer, as a scholar from her. Um, the quote you're referring to, I, I don't want to butcher it, but it's something to the effect of how do you be and become in a world that's bent on you not being and not becoming. And th- that quote is related to her book, Breathe, which was uh, a book dedicated to her two sons um, and what it was like to be a mother of, 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 of two black young men and how the challenges of that, considering what we know happens to, to black men and boys in this country, um, the violence that happens at every turn. Um, so yeah, I feel like that was such a, even though the book wasn't specifically about the 
the, the community I was writing about, it's it jumped out to me from the page because in a lot of ways, I felt like the queer sons of immigrants I spoke to could relate to that. They're, they lived in a world that was predominantly white as well as predominantly straight. And so everything around them was telling them that they're not supposed to be who they are. And so what's interesting is that despite all the messages they got from family, classmates, the history books, television, media, film, they figure out a way to be who they are and embrace that. Um, despite the fact that the world was basically set up against them. When it comes to craft, there's so many questions about how to put the book together. When you have all your data amassed and you've finished all the work, a book can be assembled in so many different ways. Do you want to talk about the decision-making of putting together this book? Thanks for asking that. <laughs> no one's ever asked me that, which I love. Um, I know we chatted a little bit earlier before we were on air, but I mentioned to you that I was at this beautiful work writing workshop called Tin House. Um, folks are unfamiliar. Please check it out. It's definitely worth trying sometime when you have a moment, a week to spare to dedicate to writing. But there I met, um, I went to a panel of, um, and the panel was three black women authors. And they talked about how it's often the case that when they get interviewed for podcasts or, you know, book events, overwhelmingly, they only get asked about the traumatic parts of the stories they write, even though there's so much more to it. And one thing they said is that no one ever asks them about craft. And that was another sentence that stood out to me because I never get questions like this. So I really appreciate it. You know, I, when I was writing the book, uh, I started writing the book or thinking about the book in 2011 or 2012. So a long time ago, in other words. And as you know, the landscape for gay people was dramatically shifting. When I started the book, we had things like, um, like Don't Ask, Don't Tell. We had uh, Marriage Equality Was Not federal law at that point but when i really was in the trenches with writing the book there was more and more gay acceptance of course in 2023 <laughs> very different things happening right now but at the time it just seemed like there was this wave of 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 increased acceptance of gay people and i remember this moment where you know, it was one year where I was just walking around somewhere with my, my partner and we were holding hands and folks, strangers would, you know, give us looks and give us props and say, you know, it's amazing. Like, thank you for, for being out like that. Um, and then one year after, it was almost as if, like, people thought that being gay no longer mattered. I think it was 2016 when marriage equality um, passed the Supreme Court. I'm sorry, 2015, excuse me. And there were a lot of folks, particularly straight folks, that just um, treated me as if, like, being gay has been something that was okay our entire lives. And I just, um, you know, I got really offended by that because I know that, like, at, at that point, I'd lived, like, 25 years, 30 years of my life 
um, as a gay person. And I, there's a lot of labor that goes into just existing. And so for the book, I felt like I wanted to mirror the, the life course of a typical young queer um, man of color and start from the beginning, which was from childhood and some of the first lessons um, of where you learn that being gay or being feminine is bad. Uh, for those for those who haven't read the book, the book is essentially in like quote unquote chronological order. It's chapter one is about childhood, the next chapters are about adolescence, and then following that is like the college years and young adulthood. And I wanted to showcase that because I really wanted to to demonstrate through the storytelling how much labor went into just existing um, for queer queer sons of immigrants. Because I think a lot of people were just unfamiliar with that because they thought, you know, now that we have marriage equality, everything is hunky-dory. And so um, it was a way to honor all the work that went into surviving, um, you know, racism, queerphobia, femphobia, um, all their lives. In the beginning part of the book, you take us through some of the editorial work that is part of doing a project like this, you use synonyms for names, you change slightly names of different organizations or schools. You also interviewed more than 60 people. How did you decide who to focus on in the anecdotal stories? And are any of them composite characters? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, it's hard, right? Because each person, for a lot of these these 60 plus men, the conversation we had was sometimes the first time they ever had the chance to talk about their coming out experiences or being gay in, in that, um, in that way. So it was really hard to decide whose stories would make it into the book and whose wouldn't, but I'll say this, I feel like every person that I interviewed helped shape the book in some way, whether their story is explicitly included or not. Um, but yeah, I think in terms of what to highlight in the stories that I included, uh, I wanted to include the stories that I thought were the the most, I shouldn't say that, I should say most compelling, but I, I wanted to include the stories that really helped you understand the way, some of the themes that I cared about. So the way that... Um, Young men are, are are trained and conditioned from an early age to to think that gay people are wrong in families, the church. Um, I wanted to include the moments when um, young men were figuring out how to survive high school. I wanted to also include the community formation moments. And so, if there was someone that talked very explicitly about that, then you know I included that part of their story in a specific chapter. You give us glimpses into your family of origin in the book and in life with your partner. It can be difficult as scholars were trained with this false idea of object- objectivity. I don't believe objectivity exists. Um, and that, you know, we're supposed to remove ourselves from our work. And yet the things that we write about with the most understanding and the most passion and that will stick with because writing a book is as you said you started this book almost a decade ago uh the idea of it the the formation of it began back then to stick with something that 
long, you have to care about it deeply. And often we care deeply about the things that we know on some intimate level. How did you decide the weaving of yourself and your own experiences into the book? You know, as an academic, we're trained to not include anything (laughs) about ourselves. And that's originally the way I went about it. I was writing this book and, you know, barely mentioned who I was. But it was actually in this creative writing workshop that I took with Kiese Lehman, where um, I shared an excerpt of very early parts of the book. And a lot of the people in the in the workshop, including him, were like, um, where are you in this story? Like, we can't really see you. And and it 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 was like a light bulb moment because I realized um, there was part of me that really saw that I couldn't write a book about queer sons of immigrants without being forthright about who I was, because as the writer, you're you're like the guide right into these stories. And if I, I felt like if I didn't share those things, how could a reader trust me? So I felt like I wanted to um, violate academic convention because ultimately I wrote this book for people outside of academia. And I wanted folks that were reading it to trust me as a reader, as a writer. And um, that's why I included those stories. In terms of the objectivity thing, I just, you know, I think it's a, there's a, it's, it's a little problematic to think that we can be objective because the reality is we grow up with a very unique set of circumstances, whoever we are. And so given the fact that the people most in power with, you know, in academic writing and publishing are oftentimes well-to-do white men, it's, it's a little, the problem with calling that objective is it ends up that whatever they write becomes the norm. And so I just, I'm not one that really believes that you can be truly objective. And it's, it's, it's worth sharing like the point of departure that you're doing this research from which you're doing this research and this writing, because at least it's more honest. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. When you work with interviews and and talking to people and gathering their stories, there's such a responsibility for holding their stories and then for sharing them. Did you invite them into any of the drafts? Did you have follow-up conversations with them to say, yes, I'm definitely going to be including this story? Or was there an understanding once they interviewed with you that the material was all going to be used in some fashion, whether it was foundational or it was quoted? Uh, great question. I, I 
from the beginning when they agreed to interview it, I let them know that um, you know the conversation we're going to be having might be included in the book. There's a good chance of that. And if there's anything that they don't want included, they can say it during the interview. They can write me after the interview, whether it's one month or one year later that they don't want it included. And that's totally okay. So I'm, I want to make sure they had my contact if ever one day they woke up and realized I don't want that included. And then, of course, the added element of using pseudonyms. I use pseudonyms there. And you'll notice in the book that I often include, say, like the the, the name of the university. But in times when I felt like the identity of the person could be easily deciphered, I would change the university and, and include like a comparable one. So I'll just give you an example. Like if someone said they went to UCR, UC Riverside, and they were, you know, doing X, Y, and Z, I might have changed that to say like UC Irvine, um, which is not a big change. Um, so that was, or you know, take the Claremont Colleges. If someone said they went to Pitzer College, maybe I'll say they went to Claremont McKenna. And I, I wanted to do that because I wanted folks to feel like they can be honest about what went on in their lives. I know for me, as someone that like faced my own struggles with my family, I would have an easier time if my story was out there in an anonymized form, at least in this point in my life. Maybe I'll change my mind one day. But for right now, um, given that my family and I are really on good terms, um, yeah, I would. that's something I would feel more comfortable with. In terms of following up, the nice thing is I, I, added, I added a lot of folks on social media. Um, at the time, it was mostly Facebook or Instagram, but uh, they were very, very cool if I needed to follow up and get clarification or if, I, if they happened to do something that they shared and I thought it was relevant to the story. And I'd say, hey, you know, I just want to reach out. I think this is what you shared about this new job or, or this new relationship. It, there's some utility to including that. Would you mind if I shared a little bit about that? And all of them were very, very open to the to that idea there was really no one that said you know please don't include that at any point you also include a bit about your family of origin and about your partner how did you work on commissions with them excuse me could you repeat that yes for your family of origin and for your partner in, including stories that involve them or quote them how did you do that process? It's a question that comes up when I interview people about memoir and there are elements of memoir in, in this work as well. So I was wondering when it's, the interviews that you set up had the strict guidelines set up so everybody knew from the beginning, but with your family of origin, with your partner, you're drawn through a deeper well. Um, how do you navigate that part? Yeah, I think I let them read it. <laughs> I, I asked, first of all, if it's okay for me to include this story. I wanted to follow, even though I, these people are in my lives per se, I wanted to approach it as ethically as I would if, you know, a stranger. And so I wanted I wanted to ask them if it was okay, if it was included. And I I could gauge how like I since I know them I could gauge what I what I know they'd feel comfortable and what they wouldn't and so I erred on the side of including things that were um that I felt they'd be okay with and then confirmed with them later so um yeah uh, obviously like 
with memoir, there's elements here. It's not a full on memoir, of course, but I think to your point, like there's a there's a really that's a really important question that memoirists think about a lot about how much to include family members in the in the pub, in the writing process. I'll say this: it's every everyone has told me that if you're going to write about your family and friends. Write it the way that you would need to write it in your first drafts, and then you can see later whether or not including story X or story Y is necessary. Um, but the fact is, when you write about people, it, it has the potential to change your relationships. So for me, I feel like, I mean, that's the that's the that's why I think memoirs is so courageous because. They're willing to do that in order to unearth some truth. For me, I, I don't think I'm there yet. <laughs> and so I only wanted to include things that I felt like they were okay with. When you wrote your first draft, did you uh, follow the guidelines that any um, nonfiction teachers offer, which is, you know, write a terrible first draft or just vomit the words onto the page? Or what was your approach when you when you did that first draft? Oh, my God, Christina, writing me and writing are sometimes best friends and we are enemies. I am unfortunately someone that believes it's an incorrect belief, (laughs) but believes that whatever I write down the page during writing is like the way it's going to end up being. And I really need to let go of that because it's never the case. So uh, I I wrote stuff and sometimes I get a little bit too obsessed at the, the writing at the sentence level and it slows me down. Um, but there, the truth is I, I really should just like bust out some writing and deal with it later. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of a self-editor. I type, delete, type, delete, and that doesn't really serve me well. Uh, so I think for the new stuff I'm writing, I'm trying to be more free-floating if if the sentences aren't perfect. But, you know, I'm, I, I'm a little bit of a perfectionist, and so it's um, it's hard to let go of that. I'll tell you this about this book. I wrote a bazillion drafts, so what you see is no nothing close to what I first wrote down for any of the chapters. And when I felt like I had a finished draft of the whole book from beginning to end, <laughs> I retyped the whole thing on a black blank doc because I I felt it had to it had to have a united voice and given that those sections were written years apart um, there's no way they had a united voice because I changed as a writer, I changed as a person. So, yeah, at the tail end of the the writing process, I like opened up a blank Word doc and just started typing. <laughs> I have so many questions. Um, I'm wondering if that's a function of what grad school does to all of us. The way that you self-edit, that you stop at the sentence level. I'm curious about what your writing was like you know, before you'd taken comps, before you had so much writing on the outcome of everything that you wrote, had you ever been a free free flow writer? Had you ever had ideas come to you and you had a just a joyful release of the writing? Um, or have you always been a very careful, um, precise writer? Wow. No one's ever asked me that. Thank you. Um, that's a good question. 
You know, now that you ask it, I think there was a time when I was a little bit more free with it because I used to, I feel like I used to journal before. I can't really remember how much I did of it, but you know, when you're journaling, you're just writing, you're just writing whatever stream of consciousness. So I feel like perhaps that might actually be an effect of my college experience where, um, you know, someone grading would nitpick one sentence. Um, and you know, in grad school, of course, it's funny because with academic writing, <laughs> it's so unenjoyable to read. And yet when we're trained to do it, people swear that like every sentence matters. Um, but anyway, the yeah, I think I was much more of a free writer before I got serious with like pursuing academia. And in some ways, I'm trying to like write myself back to that more free-spirited writer. Is there a permission you have to give yourself to do that? It seems like there became voices in our head that took away permission and became their permission only. Is there an unlearning you have to do or a permission you have to give yourself to just write your way what you want to say? Right now, what I'm trying to do is I bought... I have a lot of notebooks and I have, I actually bought a a tablet and keyboard that I am deliberately not going to include inner, like turn off the internet on it because I feel like I want to have a device where I just write without thinking too much. (laughs) And I feel like my work computer is too much associated with like that perfectionist me. So I actually just bought a tablet and keyboard so I can do my free writing um, and get sort of attach my free writing self to that device. Back when you were journaling, were you a pen and paper journaler? Oh yeah, absolutely. It seems to me that the different mediums we use for creating, you're talking about having this new tablet that's going to free you to write in a different way. And for me, like my poetry, I can't type it. It's awful. I have to free write it with pen and paper. And so it seems to me that this idea of using a different device or a different method really does play into what, what we associate as being freer and what we associate as being a more formal kind of writing. Yeah, I think so. I do a lot of um, storyboarding on pen and paper. I can't do that on a screen. So I'm a big index card person, post-its. I have some notepads where the writing is totally illegible, except to me where it looks like a bunch of flow charts. Um, So on that front, I'm actually not super perfectionist. It's just when I get to the sentence level that I am. But I really would like to you know, to your point about getting the poetry out, um, I really feel like there's some, you know, where I do a lot of free writing where I'm not perfectionist is on my notes app on the phone. Is that like a dictation? Oh no. Like literally like when you have an, on the iPhone, there's like a notes app and you can just type thoughts. Oh, with your thumbs. Yeah. And actually, another thing I've tried to do with helping with free writing is um, if I'm in the car and I have a long car ride or 
if I, I feel like the writing is just not going to be productive when I sit down at the screen, I'll, I'll actually voice record my thoughts and I'll consider that writing as well because eventually I can just turn them to paper. Um, there's these auto automatic transcribers like Otter where if I decide to like talk to myself for 30 minutes, I can just upload the file and then it'll <laughs> generate text from what I said. Did you have a thought partner while you were writing or a critique group that you shared pages with? Or was this just Dr. Ocampo in a room alone fighting with the computer? Oh, my God. To get all the... <laughs> yeah, no, it was definitely not just me. So I had a, a lot of people that, you know, no book is written as a solo endeavor. So I had some friends um, that would I would just call if I needed to, like, riff off some ideas with... Um, I also had two writing groups actually for this book. I had one that was comprised of creative writers and another one that was composed of academics, like social scientists. Um, and that was really the best because I feel like I got different kinds of feedback from each of them. Um, and I really, really owe them everything because not only would they give me amazing feedback, but I feel like the best part of those groups was the confidence that they helped me develop for my voice. Um, Cause when you're doing things alone, all the inner critic negative self-talk can become the dominant voice. So I really needed them to help me believe that something I was writing had importance um, for the world. So, or for whatever, for like, it, it was an, it's so dramatic. Um, what I was writing could be something that was important that people would want to read. You spoke earlier on about considering your audience when you were writing this and making decisions based on who the book was really for and ultimately deciding that it really wasn't for academics. It was for the people, the types of people that you had interviewed. They weren't obviously obligated to read the book, but that the, the people that you were talking to were, were the audience that you cared about. How does that affect making a decision when you look for a publisher? Yeah. There, the book is published with the University Press, NYU Press. Uh, my first book was with Stanford University Press. And more and more, I feel like I needed to work with publishers that trust me in terms of my vision for not just the the content, but also the writing style. And so in both cases, I was very upfront that I wanted to write a book that was more on the trade writing, trade book writing style than the academic writing style. Um, I don't know. I feel like I just couldn't imagine writing my books in a way that was inaccessible to the communities that I was writing about. That just seemed kind of weird um, for me. Like other people have different like experiences or different priorities, but for myself, um, it mattered that any person that I interviewed for either book would have the chance to pick it up and really be able to fall into it. Seems both in this conversation and in the book that you're a person who's created community out of a variety of different communities. Um, and so when you gathered your writing groups, you have people from very different training. When you gathered your, 
interview subjects together. They were from outside academia and you met them in a variety of different places. How do you collect up supportive community as a writer? Oh, that's super hard because I feel like writing is, it can feel very lonely, you know, and even if you have people in your workplace that are writing, it doesn't necessarily mean they're, they're writing in the same way. So I think with the, the social science writing group I had, that was a little bit by accident. I think I posted on Twitter that I was feeling lonely with writing and wish I had a writing group. And then a friend of mine was actually assembling one. (laughs) And so um, that was just like serendipity. And with the other one, I actually met the the creative writing writing group with, um, I met them at a writing workshop. And so they were my former classmates there. And we thought, Hey, let's continue getting together over zoom once a month and see how it goes. And um, yeah, it went, it, it went beautifully. Um, it's hard with writing groups. Cause I think like I can have friends in academia that are like, I love them to death, but in terms of whether they're congruent for me as a writing partner, it, it may not be the case at all. Um, and that has to do with like how people prioritize writing in their life. So for me, like writing is super important to me. Um, it's like my number one thing. If for me, I kind of think of my academic job as just like, I'm, I'm kind of being a little oversimplistic, but more and more I'm, I'm seeing it as like a, a day job that is helping me have money, time and health insurance so that I can write. It's for other people, they do the writing only because they want to keep the job because it's for like tenure and promotion. And that's never really been, um, the case for me. I've always felt like the writing was priority A. And I wanted to, um, yeah, I wanted to find people who who prioritize writing in the same way. As I was reading your book, I was thinking about vulnerability in writing. And in talking to you now, the question has popped back into my mind. How do you navigate that part? you talked a bit about academic standards and your, your job as a professor, that your work has a personal element about considering who created the standards of ob- objectivity and why, what rules are worth rejecting, and how much of yourself and your personal life is comfortable or safe to reveal. Those all seem to come back to ideas of layers of vulnerability and with what your subjects shared and how you protected them. Do you want to talk a bit about navigating vulnerability in writing right I mean I think it's with writing it's really even though I identify as a writer it's it's one important thing is to not have too much ego attached to it and to think that like you're above feedback (laughs) so you got to be incredibly vulnerable to to inhabit that mindset I think in terms of vulnerability as a general subject I've I a couple years ago, I don't know, like 10 years ago or something, I, I got I was reading a lot of Brene Brown who talks a lot about vulnerability. And so um what was really useful, even though she wasn't talking about writing per se, was that vulnerability is a strength, right? It it allows you to tap into who you are, it allows you to form connection. And so I feel like in the early part of my writing career, I was that was what I was reading on the side. And I was um Years later, I was kind of surprised at how that trickled into my writing practice. Um, and then I realized, like, the more 
vulnerable you are, like the, it, it, it invites people to connect in a way than if you're creating this sort of like all-knowing expert in some field. Um, at the same time, I will say that uh, I also learned an important lesson from Roxanne Gay, which was you don't owe anybody anything. And so if there's stuff you don't want to write about or you feel like you shouldn't write about, don't let anyone ever um, change your boundaries about that because you owe it to, to yourself to keep stuff for you or for your loved ones only. We only have a few minutes left. I know you have to battle traffic and get to campus. What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? Um, I think I want, for most listeners, I imagine that they have at least one foot, if not full, if not being fully embedded in academia. And I think there's a something about the academic culture and institution that really incentivizes you to lose yourself or incentivizes you to put forth a version of yourself that is incomplete. So for minority writers, whether it's um, women, faculty of color, um, queer faculty, we know that the in the university setting, like there's a lot of things that encourage us to share our trauma and make that the the mechanism for us to get ahead. And I feel like we shouldn't feel the pressure to do that. Um, and in general about academia, like I feel like while I'm happy and content with my job and my life choice, I will admit that like, I felt like I lost a lot of myself in academia. There's certain parts of myself that I absolutely embrace and adore. Like I'm incredibly uh, messy and I'm brutally honest and I'm, I'm a little bit irreverent (laughs) Uh, I think I'm a, I think I'm pretty good on a stage in terms of like being able to like capture a crowd and in the field that I was in, those things had zero value. And so I found that in order to get ahead, I had to essentially like quiet those versions of me. And, and then I realized, even if you do that, they're not gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna keep you out anyway. (laughs) So why not just be yourself? So, um, yeah, I guess the biggest thing I hope people take away is that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of value to following your gut. Um, if you feel like something's off with academia, you're probably right. If you feel like something is right about something outside of academia that seems incongruent with the you know discipline you're in, that's okay too. And I would encourage folks to lean into those like that inner compass that they all have. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Ocampo, and talking to us about craft and sharing a bit about your book, Brown and Gay in LA, The Lives of Immigrant Sons. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to Academic Life. I hope you will please join us again.